Let us remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning, which you'll find in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 9, verses 38 through 50, as we come to the conclusion of this chapter of Mark's Gospel. Mark 9, beginning in verse 38, let us hear and attend to the reading of God's Word. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. It's easy to get mesmerized over the desires for worldly greatness and earthbound rewards. You might remember that in this context, that's one of the issues that Jesus is dealing with with his disciples, is that they had this notion of worldly greatness and of a sense of what their reward would be after the fashion of an earthly kingdom. So who doesn't want to be powerful and rich? Uh, Do you think that that temptation is not ever present with us in the culture in which we live? As a matter of fact, um, I think that the very false premise of the unbiblical false prosperity gospel is this very thing, that uh, by earthly greatness and riches, we show the world that we are Christians and that uh, God favors us, when the Bible says just the opposite. (laughs) The Bible tells us over and over and warns us against worldly power and riches, and they do not show the favor of God and may indeed ensnare your soul in sin. It's not that having worldly riches is wrong, but trusting in them and desiring them. As a matter of fact, I think we could make a case for the baptized lotto syndrome as a condition whereby professing Christian people convince themselves that praying to win the lottery is making a deal with God. Oh, Lord, if you just let me win the lottery, I promise I'll tithe. 
I promise I'll give to you. I promise I'll, I'll really use that to, to honor you and to serve you. Now, people convince themselves, Christian people convince themselves that they can pray that way. Ignorant of what Scripture says, don't pray that way. As we come to the conclusion of chapter 9 here in the Gospel of Mark, in verses 42 through 48, Jesus gives a summary judgment as a comparative warning, a comparative warning in the form of covenantal curse promise. Now that should shock us because we're used to hearing of the promised blessing of the covenant. We want to hear about the promised blessing of the covenant. And we should embrace the promised blessing of the covenant. But what we must also recognize is that there is a two-edged sword and by the covenant there is also a promised curse or a promised judgment of reward and retribution. So it is like a two-edged sword of God's final judgment. And here Jesus says about this, it would be better comparatively by way of warning of God's judgment. Remember back in verse 41 he said, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now this word reward is important and powerful because it has that two-edged meaning. The reward of blessing and the reward of retribution, of judgment. It cuts both ways. Now this passage as we go on in verse 42 and following is generally viewed as Jesus using the literary form of exaggeration. He's saying exaggerated things here on purpose to get our attention and to make a point. But what we must not miss is that Jesus is speaking theological truth. He's not speaking literally. He's not saying you need to go out and cut off your hand. The Bible forbids that. We're to regard the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're made in the image of God. Nowhere in the Bible is dismemberment other than two issues that I'm not going to talk about that under the Old Covenant this morning. But the Bible does not prescribe dismemberment. And we need to acknowledge that and recognize that. So Jesus is not speaking literally here that you've got to go pull your eye out or cut off your hand or cut off your foot. He's speaking symbolically and he's exaggerating to make a point, but he is speaking theological truth. He's saying, this is how seriously you must take what I'm saying. As a caution against self-greatness. Remember, that's the context here. The apostles got all puffed up about who's going to be the greatest among them. We're arguing and disputing among themselves. They lost their footing. They lost where they were going. They were not even reminded of their current failure at the base of the Mount of Transfiguration in dealing with a sick and demon-possessed boy and a distressed father. And they got into disputes with the scribes meaninglessly and it led them to disregard Jesus' teaching about his coming uh, sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection that was going to take place at Jerusalem. They didn't want to hear that, so they preoccupied, preoccupied themselves on a sidetrack of who's the greatest? And you might remember the context. We spent some time going through that. And so as a caution against self-greatness, Jesus calls for serving and protecting his little ones. He said, you want to know who's going to be great? Whoever's going to be great among you, let him be least. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Let him be a servant, a, as modeled by deacons, a, a servant of all, and a, like a little school child to be taught. And to follow what the Lord has to say. He took a child up in his arms and said, you're to become like a little school child. 
Will you be taught by the Lord? Will you be under his care? Will you be under his direction? Will you be under his discipline? By the way, did you remember that the word disciple is rooted in the word discipline? To be under the discipline of Christ as a follower of him. Now, in verse 42, when Jesus speaks of little ones, he uses a different word, or at least as Mark records it here. It's a different word than little school children, back up in verse 26. Here, little ones are little ones who believe in Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or to scandalize. So who are the little ones who believe in Jesus? In the context here, they are the ones who are not great by human estimation. I put myself in that category. Not great by human estimation. I hope I have a measure of maturity in Christ as an elder in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and a shepherd, minister, and under-shepherd. I, I desire and I, I long to have that kind of maturity to grow up to manhood in Christ. But in this context and by what Jesus says regarding the world, who am I? I don't desire greatness in the world. But being one of Jesus' little ones, one who believes in him. But also Jesus goes on to warn here about entrapping, about misleading, about causing to stumble any of his little children. As professing Christian believers who stumble, who get sinfully ensnared or trapped. This is also recognized as Christians who are weak in the faith and in the development of Scripture and the later writings and applications, particularly the Apostle Paul. Uh, he talks about our care for those who are weak in the faith, those who are vulnerable to a false dualism of sinful self-righteousness and self-indulgence. Now think about that. Jesus is warning. He tells his apostles and he tells us as ministers, elders, and deacons, as mature Christians, that we are to be very protective and care for the little ones who believe him, those who are weak in the faith, those who are vulnerable to the dualism of the world in terms of self-righteousness, who set up false standards, who set up checklists, and who externalize their idea of sin into things rather than what the Bible tells us. We're to be careful about that. We're not to lead them into sin. We're to teach them better. This whole teaching about weak believers and the conscience of weak believers, even in the apostles' writing in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians, I mean, yeah, Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and so forth, this teaching has often been turned upside down. That we somehow are to be bound and we're to uh, give in to the false presumptions of weak believers. No, we're to correct them with compassion, with charity. But at the same time, we're to be very careful. Not to mislead them. Not only not to mislead them in self-righteousness, but not to mislead them into self-indulgence. There is false teaching, and it has long been and continues to come around, that, oh, it doesn't matter what we do in our body. And so there are those who, in past time, were called libertines. Those who said, you can do anything you want to, are called antinomians, lawless ones. You can do anything you want to in your body, because Jesus saved your soul. So anything you do in your body doesn't count. It's only your soul that remains pure. And you need to be disassociated. As a matter of fact, you can sin purposefully with your body and say, it didn't touch me. It didn't touch my soul. That's a false teaching. Now, it manifests itself in many grievous ways. 
Jesus is here laying the foundation and it's going to be built up upon that we are to be careful in guarding the souls of the little ones of Jesus. To guard you against self-righteousness. To steer you away from your externalism. To look to the scriptures and to the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Bringing you into conformity with the mind and the life of Christ as the truth is in Jesus. And then also warning you against the false witnesses of the world who say you can claim the name of Christ and you can live like the devil. You can embrace every sinful activity. You can change the names of sin. And it's meaningless because your soul is separate from your body and now your soul is cleansed and has nothing to do with whatever you do in your body. That kind of self-indulgence. That's false teaching. That's scandalizing. That's entrapping Jesus' little ones. And Jesus says, he doesn't like it. You will be held accountable for that. And I'm speaking not only within our congregation, but across the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I read just this morning of a fellow who's thrown his hat into the ring uh, to run for president who says, I am a Christian and I am gay. And I can tell you on the authority of the word of God, you are not. God will not accept your perverse and your sinful lifestyle. I don't care whether it's being gay or whether it's being an extortioner or whether it's being uh, someone who claims any other sin and tries to make it a virtue. This fellow says, God made me this way. The scripture says, God did not make you that way because God will not deny his own holiness. God will not contradict himself. God is not tempted with evil and he doesn't tempt you with evil. You alone are guilty for your sin. And so scripture warns us about ensnaring Jesus' little ones, entrapping them and leading them into sin. So serious is this that Jesus' exaggerations fall into two categories. He uses two categories here. In verse 42, he uses the category of execution by drowning. Did you hear what Jesus said? But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, to scandalize in the way that we've just been talk, talking about, it would be better for him if a millstone, now this is the larger millstone that the uh, beast of burden, an ox or a, uh, a donkey or mule would, would uh, be in charge of. They, they would strap it on a, on a wooden beam and the beast would walk around in... Um, a circle treading out the grain and that's that's a big millstone the size of a tractor tire and Jesus says it would be better for him if a large millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea now I want you to understand that Jesus is not talking about suicide here Jesus isn't saying it'd be better for you to go off and drown yourself this kind of description that Jesus is using of the millstone or a stone the size of a millstone being tied around someone's neck and thrown into the sea was a current form of execution. Isn't that frightening? Isn't that frightening? But what is Jesus' point here by way of exaggeration? His point is human earthly punishment does not compare to God's punishment, God's righteous punishment. There is no sea deep enough for you to escape God. I kind of hope this is like a dash of cold water in our face this morning. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to use scare tactics. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. 
I am trying to emphasize the seriousness of what's before us in the Scriptures here this morning. Remember, back in verse 41, Jesus used a covenantal oath. Amen. He's speaking with authority here. As he says, it would be better comparatively, those who will not lose their reward by even giving a cup of water to those in my name. Amen. They will never lose their reward. But also know this. It would be better when it comes to comparative application of the judgment of God. And then in verses 43 through 48, Jesus takes up a second category where he uses the judicial law and the a law of proportional retribution. Let the punishment fit the crime, an eye for an eye. We even had some discussion in Sunday school this morning about that. So listen to verses 43 through 48, what Jesus says here. If your hand causes you to sin, he's dealing with breaking you know, God's moral law here in terms of the sin, what God identifies as sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Remember, Jesus is not speaking literally. Nowhere does the Bible uh, um, in, enforce or uh, institute bodily dismemberment. Jesus is speaking by way of exaggeration to make the point, so that's important to know. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, Pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, there are some textual variations uh, in verses 43 through 48, but the basis of what is said is not in question. It's just, is it repeated three times or is it, you know, uh, only written once? But the validation of what Jesus says here is not in question. And Jesus is using the judicial law of proportional retribution. Let the punishment fit the crime. An eye for an eye, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. And he's telling us something. He's telling us this should be a self-imposed control over our conscience, revealing the need for the circumcision of our heart. This is where this comes from. So Jesus is not literally saying cut off your hand. He's saying can you have control? Can you control what your hands do? Can you control where your feet go? Can you control what your eyes see in terms of how you gaze upon it? And he's saying that kind of control must come from within with a circumcision of the heart that will be later elaborated in the epistle literature. The the cutting off of that power of sin and, and giving us the empowerment by the Holy Spirit to walk to act, to see circumspectly, warily, carefully, discerningly, as Scripture further elaborates for this. Now, this actually, what Jesus says here, may be understood as the negative way of applying the golden rule. You know the golden rule, treat others the way you wish them to treat you, based on God's moral law, and uh, having love for God first. 
love God first and then love your neighbor in the ways that God says are loving. In other words, don't do hateful and sinful things to others. Have you ever considered this? How Jesus teaching us to pray applies to, oh, don't let us be led into temptation. Don't lead others into temptation. Have you led others into sin? The Apostle Paul tells us of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, and he says this, the Holy Spirit does not lead you into sin. So people who say, oh, God uh, told me to do this. God told me to act in this sinful way. God told me to violate my marriage. God told me to leave my spouse. God told me to to do this or that or the other. God told me that I could take that money because I really needed it and and, etc., God, the Holy Spirit, does not lead you to sin. How do we know sin? Sin is the breaking of the law. The Bible identifies for us what sin is. Expanding it beyond just the Ten Commandments and applications to us. The Bible identifies for us sin. And the Holy Spirit of God does not lead us into sin. You can't blame God for your sin. And so Jesus is telling us, Here, we need to be very careful. Now, the Old Testament law code did not institute body dismemberment for the breaking of the law. If you stole something, the law of God didn't say cut off that person's hand. The law of God said pay it back with interest, with restitution. So the the Old Testament law code did not institute um, bodily dismemberment for the breaking of the law, but rather calculated uh, restitution. So Jesus' examples are intended to express a greater concern connected with eternal destiny. You know what's more important than earthly stuff? Even if we appreciate the biblical teaching on restitution, that if somebody steals something of yours, they need to pay it back and pay it back with interest. That's equitable. That's the law of proportion. How wise is that? But Jesus isn't limiting in that. He's not really talking about the application of the external part of the law. Jesus is talking about the soul and the heart, and Jesus is talking about eternal destiny. You didn't miss that, did you? Human responsibility to the moral law of God, accountable by actions, what your hands do. If your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better to go through life maimed than to be cast into hell, whole, where the fire is not quenched, and their worm does not die. Jesus says that, and then he uh, qualifies that with, he's talking about the kingdom of God. To live in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is not speaking literally here. He's talking to us about how we must die to self. To die to self. To what our hands do. To where our feet go to what our eyes see by way of our actions, our associations, and our attractions. This is heavy and deep in terms of Jesus' teaching. That's why it's recognized as so puzzling often to us. These are deep things, heavy things that Jesus is talking about. The intended exaggerations of cutting off the personal bodily members used to sin, offend, scandalize, God and the treatment of his children are in proportion to eternal punishment. This is the term hell or Gehenna. 
Gehenna is the rendering for the Hebrew term Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is on the southern outskirts of Jerusalem where historically children were offered in burnt sacrifices to the idol, the pagan god Moloch. Oh, that ought to turn your stomach. During the reigns of Ahaz and Manasseh, the idol was fired up in bronze to a glowing heat and little babies were thrown onto the idol, burned alive. Now, beloved, I'm not going to get into it this morning, but I can tell you the techniques of abortion are of the same kind of stomach-churning reality. But you see, this Gehenna, this Valley of Hinnom, was so named during the time of Josiah, the King Josiah, he turned it into the garbage pit, the, the city dump where fire smoldered day and night and worms, that is maggots, were ever present in the waste. Have you ever been to a landfill? Look, I have to keep from getting sick. If I go out to the, the garbage can and put some garbage in there when there's been previous trash in there for several days in August summer. What can you imagine? Going to an open garbage pit, open to an open city dump, where all manner of garbage and trash, where in this time the fire was burned to try to keep down and to try to consume the refuge, and yet there were carcasses and waste of all manner that caused worms and maggots to constantly be uh, there. I don't need to go on. You get the picture. It's pretty gross. This is what Jesus is talking about. And he's saying, for example, this is the reversal to burning children in false worship for those who hate God and his children. It's the burning and the gnawing of body and soul by eternal punishment. Their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. That's getting pretty personal. Jesus says in this eternal retribution and eternal punishment of Gehenna, of hell, there is a gnawing of conscience like a worm that never dies, and there is an external fire that is never quenched. Again, I don't believe that Jesus is speaking literally here, but what I believe Jesus is speaking about is the consciousness of soul eternity apart from the comfortable presence of God, out of covenant with God. So we come to verses 49 and 50. After that heavy warning that Jesus gives, we come to verses 49 through 50, where Jesus says, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Fire and salt. This is what Jesus is saying here. Fire and salt. It's inclusive of everyone. He says, verse 50, salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor or its saltiness or its season, how will you season it? How can you make salt salty again? You can't. But he says, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another in reference to the sacrificial fire. Okay, look again at verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, 
How will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Now, I hope we've already established that Jesus is speaking figuratively here, and Jesus is using symbolism. He's not using an illustration, okay? Jesus uses the Old Testament ceremonial law of sacrifices, which prescribes salt as symbolism. Jesus is not speaking of an illustration here. Jesus isn't saying, well, now I'm going to compare you to your motives and your actions. They need to be like good salt, not like bad salt. That's the way this is often moralized. That Jesus is saying, oh, we need to be salty. See, salt is an irritant. So that our Christian testimony will irritate people in their sin. Or salt is a, a, a protection against corrosion. Salt is healing. And I've often heard the illustration, if you go into the ocean to swim and you've got a cut on your hand, uh, look at how it, it just heals up because salt is healing. And so what is often said is that when Jesus here uses the term salt, he's saying that that's the way we need to be in our motives and our actions. We need to be good salt and not bad salt. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is using the symbolism of fire and salt based on Old Testament sacrifices. That symbolism, he's saying, has a reality connected to it. He's demanding the greater purification, the purification of our soul, symbolized by the fire and salt of Old Testament sacrifices. And this is the new covenant paradox of worshipers being living sacrifices. Do you know what it is to be a living sacrifice unto God? We're called to be that. We're told, told that that's who we are. We are living sacrifices. We die to self. We are crucified daily. My flesh is crucified, yet I live. I am crucified with Christ. Over and over again, Scripture makes the application to us that we are to be living sacrifices unto God because we have been purified by fire and salt through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the symbolism of the old covenant sacrifices in fire and salt have been satisfied really, not symbolically, but really in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, it wasn't just that there was prescribed sacrificial uh, animals, for example. Here we're talking about sacrificial animals, not the sacrifices or the giving of um, grain or fruits or that kind of thing. We're talking about sacrificial animals, ultimately sin sacrifice. And sin sacrifice demanded the death of the, of the um, sacrifice and the offering. And that offering had to be prepared and it had to be burned on the altar. But it wasn't that alone. And you may not know this, but the sacrifice of the animal having met all the qualifications, then by the priest had to be salted. The fire on the altar and the animal carcass had to be salted. And that's the point that Jesus is making. It wasn't just the fire. Everyone is going to be purified by fire. But the question is, has your soul been salted with the satisfaction of Jesus Christ? Because even a sacrifice that was offered with unseasoned or bad salt was still burned, but it was not purified. That's the point that Jesus is making here. No one escapes God's final judgment. Christian believers and non-Christian unbelievers, based on God's law of sacrifice, there must be sacrifice. No one will escape. 
Jesus' statement interprets the symbolic meaning of the holy fire and the holy salt as God's ways of purification. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are identified as the only perfectly acceptable holy sacrifice satisfying God's justice. So the symbolism of the fire and the salt are associated with the Holy Spirit's effectual working justification and sanctification for purification, making holy Christian believers. And now verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor or its saltiness, how will you resalt it? How will you season it? And the implication there is you cannot make bad salt good again. Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Isn't that a cryptic saying? What does Jesus mean, have salt in yourselves? And my doctor says, don't have salt in yourself. Jesus is not speaking literally here. He's speaking about the symbolism of it's not just the fire of sacrifice, it's the purifying salt of sacrifice. And that's what you must have in yourself. The purification that comes through the Holy Spirit salting us with the satisfaction of Jesus' sacrifice. Fire is symbolic of God's holiness. The condition of the salt determines if the sacrifice is acceptable. Salt that has lost its saltiness is ineffective for conditioning the sacrifice. However, the fire still burns and consumes it. There is no substitute for real salt, so only the Holy Spirit applies the satisfaction of Jesus' sacrifice for salvation that affects reconciliation, soul peace with God and fellow Christian believers. Therefore, by the Holy Spirit's indwelling, Christian believers have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another because we have peace with God. This is part of what it means to be a living sacrifice in Christian faith and how we can have peace with one another, not worried about who's the greatest, not wanting to promote ourselves, but wanting the best for others, caring about others, not wanting to lead others into sin, dying to self, our ego our desire for worldly greatness and for the power of riches, giving up everything and saying, I love my brothers and my sisters because God has loved me. Have you had that salting, that purification that comes through justification and sanctification by the sacrifice of Jesus applied to you through the Holy Spirit so that you understand what it means here? Yes, pastor, I understand what Jesus is saying here. It's not just the consuming fire of God's judgment. Nobody's going to escape that. But in Jesus, my, my soul has been salted with his satisfaction. And by that, I have peace with God, reconciled. And therefore, I love one another in the body of Christ, all Jesus' little ones. So Jesus gives shocking warnings about offending God by scandalizing, hating, scorning, abusing, or leading his little ones into sin. Yet people take offense over the warnings about a real hell of eternal punishment as sacrifice to God's demands of holy justice and satisfaction of Jesus' holy sacrifice, fulfilling the divine scheme of salvation. Consider that. 
rather than being shocked by Jesus' warning here, people take offense. People take offense at me for preaching the whole counsel of Scripture to say there's a real hell. What am I supposed to do with this Scripture? You tell me, what am I supposed to do with this Scripture? In in answering to God as a faithful minister, shouldn't I be warning you with the warnings that Jesus gave? I can't just be silent on this. I can't just skip over it and say, well, you know, we don't really like that part about hell or that's too offensive to people. No, the offense is to God. People need to know their sin is an affront and an offense to God. Jesus says, I'm warning you about my little ones and you had better take heed to what I say. And he concludes that by saying, do you have that kind of salt? Do you have that kind of holy transformation so that your mind and heart agree and submit to what Jesus says here? Jesus, hell is fearful. I don't want to talk about that. I'm not even sure I want my children to hear about this. Jesus says they have to. Everyone's got to hear this. You've got to trust me rather than be afraid of what the world says. You've got to trust me. You've got to trust me in my word. Because I'm telling you about eternity. What good is it if someone goes through this world thinking that I'm a pretty good person? You know? Yeah, I know my hand did that, but here's somebody who did something worse. Yeah, I know my feet took me over there, but I didn't go all the way with them. And I know my eyes look and look around and really find pleasure and, and I fix on these things. And, but, you know, there are people who look at worse stuff than I do. You see, comparing person to person, comparing to somebody who's always worse, or you're in your eyes or their eyes, somebody who's further down. And the point that Jesus is making here is that That's not where you need to be looking. So to be a faithful minister of the Word of God, I have to tell you the whole counsel of Scripture. And by taking the whole of God's Word as truth, then we understand what Jesus means about fire and salt. And if it unsettles us, good. Because we're to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. We live in a time now where there are many confusing voices. There are those who call themselves Christian who deny the essence of God's authority and who Jesus Christ was and who want to change the names and validate every wicked practice. There are those who say, oh, we have a better knowledge now. We've understood God does change. That there are things that change and, and that we can't, you know, put God in a box and say, oh, uh, un- under olden times, because of those social constraints, God said, well, it's not good to live this way. But now we have a, a new and better understanding and God has changed. Now, he didn't change the Bible. He didn't change his scripture. But these people say they know better and that God has changed his meaning. So we can take the words of Scripture and we can reinterpret them. Those are deceivers. They are deceivers. They are of their father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning. I will simply tell you this, as you well know. The old lie of the devil was 
You shall be like God. You shall be a law unto yourself. You shall determine what is good and what is evil for you. And the princely prophet of old Isaiah said, as a spokesman for God, woe, that word woe is a heavy word of judgment. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. That has not changed because God's nature doesn't change because God's word is fixed. The heavens and the earth will pass away, but the word of God abides forever. It's my duty. I count it a great privilege. But like with the Apostle Paul, I want to be able to say with a good conscience, I did not cease day and night warning every one of you of God's truth. And so when we come this morning to the Lord's Supper, fire and salt has prepared this for us. We know that there is no real sacrifice. That's again a false teaching that has come down through the ages. That there, Jesus is being re-sacrificed here in this Lord's Supper. No, He's not. It's not an illustration. It's a symbolism. A symbolism of a greater heavenly reality. Jesus' bread... The unleavened bread. We know in the, in the Passover originally, it was about haste. God said, you don't have time for the bread to rise. Don't put any yeast in it. We also know that yeast sometimes is associated with sin and corruption. So we take that rich symbolism and we say that in Jesus' body, he came to quickly accomplish what God sent him to do. Can, can you think of this in the, the scope of world history? And I'll bring it even down closer. In the... Days of my 64 years, 30 years for Jesus to live, to minister, to accomplish the mission that God sent him to do, that's a, a drop in the bucket. Jesus came quickly. Jesus came in haste. Jesus came intently. And nothing Stopped him. Nothing turned him to the left or to the right. He was focused. The scriptures say he set his face like a flint. To go to Jerusalem, even though everybody was saying, They're gonna, the Jews are going to kill you if you go there. That's where I'm going, and that's what I'm going to do to fulfill my Father's will. So, this bread of the Lord's Supper symbolizes to us who Jesus is and what He did, and that we are livingly united to Him as our bread of life. Such rich symbolism. It's not limited to one thing. There are multiple symbolisms that merge together in this bread that symbolizes to us life through faith in Jesus Christ. And the same is true for the cup. Jesus' blood was pure. It was untainted by sin. The, the cup of wine that was used in the Passover, the several cups, Jesus fulfilled. He, he is, the term is, he dredged. He took every drop of the, the, the cup of God's judgment and he drank it down. That symbolism is used to tell us that the cup of God's judgment has passed. And we have the cup of God's blessing because we're covered by the blood. It's not real blood. It doesn't turn into real blood. It doesn't need to. Because once and for all, Jesus gave his life blood. And now through the symbolism of the wine and the cup, we're told that we are livingly united to the true vine being nurtured and kept by our Heavenly Father as the farmer. He tends to us. 
and he harvests us for himself, that we too might be the satisfying wine of purification through the sacrifice, the fire and the salt of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit attends these elements, not in them. The Holy Spirit attends them by faith, that we take the words that Scripture defines for us what this means, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, that there is no salvation outside of Him. I hope you can connect that this morning to our being salted as a sacrifice through the Holy Spirit's applying the satisfaction of Jesus Christ. We're not unsalted. We've been purified. Purified through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be sacrifice. The fire will burn up everyone's works. Even Christian believers will be be purified through fire. But that fire is not the fire of punishment. It's not the fire of eternal retribution. It's the purifying fire that is acceptable because we have been salted by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. So as we come to this Lord's Supper this morning, remember that it is for those who have identified with the Lord Jesus through baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and being a member of the church that preaches just as I preached this morning, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we come to this Lord's Supper having made confession of our sin because God forgives us our sins through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. It's Him who makes us worthy. It's the Holy Spirit's compelling us to come. Don't listen to false voices. Listen to the Holy Spirit. If you're holding back unconfessed sin, then the Holy Spirit warns you. If you're holding back uh, malice and resentment and unforgiveness toward others, the Holy Spirit is warning you. But if you've opened your heart and said, Lord, forgive others as you have forgiven me, I want to forgive them. I don't want to hold that grudge. I don't want ill to follow them. I want them to be made right with you. I want to be a living sacrifice of service, even to my own hurt, even to my own pain. Sanctify that to me that others might be corrected and restored. So you come to this Lord's Supper humbly praying for that communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and that blessing of unity and love for one another. I know we're going through hard times. I know we're going through an unsettled and seemingly an unknown future. But we commit that to the Lord in love for one another. And let us keep it as long as we can. Let us receive it in faith as a blessing from the Lord. So we turn to our hymn of meditation, hymn number